everyone to the Family Medicine Podcast. We explore stories, journeys, opinions, and philosophies within the field of family medicine and primary care. And now, the host of the show, Ross Tanning. Hello and welcome back to the Family Medicine Podcast. This is episode six, part two, with Dr. Andreas Edrick. If you haven't listened to part one, you might want to go back and check that out, just if for no other reason, to get a little bit of a background on Dr. Edrick and who he is. But also, this podcast should, theoretically, function as a standalone episode as well. So in this part, we discuss many aspects of the field of addiction medicine uh, from the perspective of a physician who's double-boarded in family medicine and addiction medicine. Real quick before we get started, the next doc on my podcast did a fellowship in geriatrics. So if you have any questions or topics that you are curious about in that field, email familymedicinepodcast at gmail.com and submit your questions. Okay, that's all. So thanks and enjoy part two of Dr. Andres Edrick. to uh, get into some uh, the topic of addiction yeah and uh, and we can definitely talk about it within the context of mental health or yeah, mental yeah. health within the context of addiction yeah um, but can we just define what addiction is let me give you the story I'll, I'll tell you exactly how it develops because it's not really a definition there is a definition it's doing something you're not supposed to be doing, spending time, money, and effort doing it when you know you should be doing something else. Like, that's the short of it, you know? Okay. But here's the real story. Here's Do the it. real story. Oh, yeah. It hit me. Yeah. If you, I ask all my patients who come in who are on heroin or whatever, I say, how did this all start? Roll the clock back, dial me back to day one. Yep. And I'm talking age 12, 13, 14, the first time you did whatever, anything ever, at all, ever, ever. And every single patient, almost without fail, I would say 99% of my, especially my heroin patients, will say, oh, it started at age 12 or 13. 12 and 13 is the most common number that I get of okay. all. Right. And it'll almost always be marijuana. Yeah. Well, I'll start with marijuana, and then maybe the next year or so I started drinking some alcohol. And I'll say, okay, well, what was it back then that started it? Well, I was just stressed out and, you know, life was going bad. I was getting bad grades. My parents were fighting and I hated my brother and all the other things, you know. Mm -hmm. It's kind of a self-medication thing. Yeah. And then, um, you know, slowly they'll they'll begin trying other things. Oh, maybe at age 13, 14, my friend gave me a Vicodin or something, you know, because uh, the weed wasn't working that well anymore, you know. Yeah. And, hey, if it's safe for my mom, it should be safe for me. You know, if doctor said it's safe for her, you know, yep. they go they go on that kind of rationale. Yeah. Teenage logic. Right. And it really <laughs> calmed down my anxiety and I could I could rest better. And over time, they'll say, well, it, it was just one Vicodin here and there from a prescription left over from the dentist. It's, you know, it's legal. It's not illegal. And, you know, I only used it once or twice a week, like when I got really stressed. I mean, it was three times a week, once in a while. And then, I mean, there were the time the in-laws came in and I had to do it. So it wasn't like I had an option, you know, yeah. uh, but it's hardly ever more than seven times a week, you know, and never more than three times on a particular day. I mean, there was that one day it was four times, but never more than five times a day, like ever hardly ever. Um, and then it just starts going from there. Yeah. And these are, these are normal people, you know, these are my CEOs in the Denver tech center. These are teachers. These are moms. These are dads. These are people dressed in three piece suits. And these are kids in torn up jeans. It's the cross society. Mm -hmm. You won't know who it is, but it always starts in the same direction, which is, Oh yeah, there is some kind of an emotional mental health issue. And then I reached out and I found a solution. Yeah. Now, is if it, you're oh, sorry, mm -hmm. yeah. well, I wanted to ask: Does it always start super young? You said it's real common at twelve, thirteen. Yeah. But do we ever see people who are becoming sure uh, addicted or becoming yeah. addicts later yeah. in life, forty, fifty? But they still mm -hmm. had all the components there early. Right. Right. Uh, it can happen assuming. later. But the biggest problem is this: Anytime you mess with the brain in the developing years, especially below the age of twenty-five, mm -hmm. things become kind of more permanent. Yep. So if a 35-year-old guy, you know, 
gets really stressed in his marriage and starts smoking weed or, you know, pops an occasional Percocet, it's less likely that they're going to become fully addicted to it than a kid who's using it younger. The analogy is always... If you stick a soldering iron into a PC board as it's growing through the the belt and the production, you're probably going to screw that machine up for life. Yeah. If I mess with it after I bought the computer, I can just go back to the Mac store and flash it back to the original factory settings, you know? But if you mess with it during development, that's where it becomes permanent. Yeah, I think of it as like the cement hasn't hardened yet. That's right. That's right. You put your handprint in there when it's still wet. That's it. That's permanent. And we know from all other diseases, most diseases are permanent. Diabetes is permanent, blood pressure, thyroid. Most diseases are non-curable. We're good at controlling them. Lots of treatments to control stuff, zero cures. I mean, hangnails and bladder infections and strep throat, we can cure that, okay? But for the most part, most other things we're better at controlling and managing, but not curing. But for some bizarre reason, people somehow think, well, addiction should just be something I should shake, quote unquote, Mm -hmm. um, because it's some kind of a, um, a willpower or a defect in your, you know, uh, in your character or something, you know, right. which as is if not. The, as if the substance that they're addicted to is the issue. And then right. if we can get that out of my That's life. That's right. Well, now I'm, now I'm not addicted yeah. to it. Yeah. So great. Exactly. That's not that's the way not it, goes. it goes. No. <laughs> the underlying problem is usually the underlying mental health problem, the depression, the anxiety, the anger that these kids are getting, you know? I have heroin addicts who come up to me straight up, non-solicited. I've had this many times where they say, do me a favor, doc, tell these kids that weed is the gateway drug, okay? Mm -hmm. And I'll say, that's an interesting comment coming from you, being the heroin addict at the bottom of the barrel, you've been at the lowest point of everybody. Mm -hmm. And you're telling me weed is a gateway drug because here's the thing, right? The rest of the world's telling me how weed's kind of a cure-all for everything across the sun. Yep. That's really interesting. Tell me what you're thinking. And the, the, per, the, the, the patient will say, it's not just the weed. It's the company that weed keeps. Yeah. So when I'm 12 or 13, I'm feeling down in the dumps, and I'm hanging out with Johnny who says, hey, weed's your answer. Well, what if weed stops working after a while? Well, if I trusted him with one decision, I'm more likely to trust him with the next decision and hang out with kids that also trust each other's suboptimal decisions. Mm -hmm. And all of a sudden, we start taking their advice over and over with different aspects, too. And all of a sudden, it's not just weed. It's weed and Vicodin. It's Vicodin and Oxy. And it's Oxycontin. And then it's the occasional heroin because there's somebody else that you trust. It's usually how it works. And I think one of the most important things that we've seen in history is the repetition of the same mistake over and over. If you open Google and you Google the word old heroin ads, you will see bottles and bottles and bottles of products that were created in the 1800s that claim... You're getting your computer out. ...that claim to be (laughs) the cure-all for things in the 1800s. And by the way, these are the same pharmaceutical companies that are still in existence now. Um, so if you if you Google old heroin ads, let me see if my internet shows up, you will see images of bottles from 1850 that have, um, for example, Bayer makes aspirin mixed with heroin. It came in an actual product. Bayer made it. Nice. Um, they made cocaine teething drops for children, you know? This one here talks about having a hectic day. You should take something called Nervine, which had heroin in it, you know? Simpler times. Simpler times, right? Mrs. Winslow's <laughs> soothing syrup, you know? Um, for hay fever, they had cocaine to treat hay fever, you know? They had treatments for, back then they called them flesh people, huh. which was methamphetamine and cocaine to help with obesity. Okay, fleshy they called people? it fleshy people. They these are people f- who are addicted to these things? These, that, are, that's these, what are, that meant? these are fat people, obesity, oh, that they're treating, but back then they diagnosed it as the fleshy disease, you uh, know? and so like today's equivalent of fluffy. Yeah, right? <laughs> Baldness is curable. <laughs> like, I mean, these are vintage ads for weed and, and heroin. Yeah. Now, if that's the 1850s, if you take these pictures and you dial forward to, you know, the year 2000, and you just replace the word heroin with the word marijuana, it's the same thing. 
all of a sudden we're in the generation when marijuana cures everything in the world, you know? Yeah, it cures your work issues, it cures your marital problems, it cures your bipolar. Puts you to sleep if you need it. Doesn't it doesn't do that. Yeah. <laughs> Our first psychiatrist ever, um, Sigmund Freud, was the biggest cocaine head in the world. In fact, in his well-renowned medical journals, he wrote the words, cocaine is the medication sent by the gods we must give this to all of our patients yeah i wonder if he was on cocaine when he, he wrote it yeah exactly <laughs> and so all these people were on cocaine um and then he realized well maybe cocaine isn't good for everybody and we synthesized since then products from cocaine and methamphetamine specifically methamphetamine now we have adderall and ritalin for kids but only when it's legitimate mm -hmm. the military was doling out methamphetamine straight up to its pilots they called them go pills yeah this so was could, in uh, world war ii yeah. yeah so they could fly 100 yeah. hours right and then when they got back they were given slow pills which are basically valium mm. until the next time they hopped back into their cockpit and were given go pills again you know what a way but it's that <laughs> crazy repeating the same mistake over and over is marijuana completely bad? No. The CBD component, CBD receptors are very well known for chronic pain, maybe even PTSD. Like there's a lot of things there that cannabinoids, the CBs, can be useful for. The THC? No. There's no use for THC. That just numbs you out um, and just makes you not care about stuff, you know? But yeah. again, we go There's from no that, use for THC in the treatment of depression or, or no, exactly. treatment of anything. No, exactly. No saying. known use right now for medical purposes, you know, different than the CBD component, which does have a use. And we think it's helpful for depression and, and, and maybe PTSD and so forth, you know, mm -hmm. and chronic pain management. You know, we've had people, one of my jobs is to get people off of painkillers and some of them will use CBD oils and thereby be able to reduce even further their narcotic need for painkillers, yeah. which is a great trade-off, you know? Yeah. But the whole age of like, oh, weed cures everything is just not right. Yeah, it's, and it's this, yeah, yeah, it's just repeated history over and over, you know? Yeah, that makes yeah. sense. Um, from a policy standpoint, I mean, you just made it clear that you're not for it medically, but what do you think about legalizing it to, you know, not have it be yeah. uh, an illegal and illicit drug right? versus, I guess, uh, legalizing all recreational drugs? I know that they've right. done that in some places. Mm -hmm. um, it seems like it's a good effect, but I'm also not uh, right. a great historian Well, you look that. at, uh, you know, um, I think it was in... in um, in Portugal, forget, yeah, Portugal, yeah. Portugal did it with de they decriminalized everything. They right? didn't. They didn't legalize it. They decriminalized right. it, and that's a big difference. Yes. So, um, you know, decriminalizing and, and not wasting our taxpayer money on people putting people in jail for addictions is a very wise thing. I think that's really smart. Am I totally against weed? No, absolutely not. But we have to be a lot more cautious about where we use it, you know? Yeah. And of the weed, I think the CBD component is going to be the most useful part. Because honestly, if it's just unchecked and nobody's controlling it, then it's like in the old days when people used methamphetamine unchecked. Not a wise decision. Not <laughs> right. good. Yeah. Okay, you synthesize some product that's useful, like maybe Adderall Ritalin for the right kid, now you have something that's worthwhile. Is it good for everybody? Is it good to give Adderall to people who want to lose weight? No, not a good idea, you know? So again, I think when you have a chemical that has potential fatal effects, mm -hmm. you, need to, you need to check that. One of the problems that we see with, with THC in particular is it, it clogs your, uh, it, it mismanages your, your cognitive abilities. So mm -hmm. your ability to do executive functioning becomes stunted with weed which is not good especially if you're driving cars and things you know right. now the the part that here's the difficult part and the, the president from the american side of addiction medicine said look we already have alcohol do we really need to add thc on top of it you know right because here's the thing alcohol um um, inhibits your motor activities so driving becomes a little more difficult but usually you have enough executive functioning that you can kind of overpower that and you know you just drive really slowly and that way you don't run over so many curbs you're saying on on marijuana Alco or alcohol? on alcohol that's on okay. alcohol stunts no no if you have the executive function though well, that's the thing, right? So alcohol will stunt your motor activities, but not yes. so much your executive functioning. 
marijuana will stunt I've seen more. Some people drunk, before. right? I Absolutely. Don't know if I agree with that. No, though. no, no. That, no, I think you make a good point there. But in general, you can you can usually maintain more of your executive functioning and overpower some of the motor dysfunction. You know, sure. I'll go. Whereas with that. weed kind of does the opposite. It, it stunts more the the executive functioning part. Yeah. But your motor skills tend to be a little bit. Like people on weed don't tend to stumble and weave like people on alcohol do. Right, but they can space out and rear they can end space the out. car. On That's the right. Yeah. Their reaction times are slower. Now you have the problem in the reality, which is a lot of people doing weed are also drinking alcohol. Yeah. So now you've stunted both your motor skills and your executive functioning. And one of the features of weed is you're not really aware that you're not aware. Mm-hmm. So it stunts your awareness factor in the first place. So people mistakenly feel they're more capable than they really are. Yeah. Or they don't care. So they get some of that apathy right. from the weeds. They're like, no, nah, it'll be fine. Now they've got both dangers on board, alcohol and weed, and they're driving. And that's just a huge problem. Yeah, you know, that's I, feel like, difficult. I feel like we compare marijuana to alcohol so mm-hmm. often. They're not even really similar no. things. No. So it seems kind of silly to do so, but... I guess yeah, we, you know we have alcohol that's legal for recreational use, so we kind of wanted to put marijuana in that category too. Even right. though, again, they're not right in the same category to but me we, or really anyone else. Right. We use the word recreation like it's basketball or something, you know? Right. Like, none of these things are recreations. Recreation is something we do that's for our health, you know? Sure. Now, there's nothing wrong with having a beer to watch a ball game or something, you know? Right. I, I think that would be the recreational use. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Um, as long as it's taken within the confines. And the problem is never, like with alcohol, somebody having a beer watching a game and staying at home. That's rarely ever been a problem. Mm-hmm. The problem is just how do we get the entire society to not take alcohol behind the wheel? Yeah. It, if, if it was 100% guaranteed that nobody would ever make bad decisions or drive under the influence of any chemical, I don't care if it's Benadryl or alcohol or marijuana, like at all, we wouldn't have nearly these problems, you know? Sure, but I think there's more to it than just the operating motor vehicle aspect to it. I know that yeah. it's often cited marijuana has no you know, lethal dose, mm-hmm. whereas alcohol certainly does, and so does heroin, and so do a lot right, of drugs. Right, exactly. Yeah. And that all aside, the ultimate question that I always come down to, that I always treat patients for is, even if it doesn't have a lethal dose, even if if even if you promise never to drive behind with with weed or alcohol, the point is still the same, which is most of the time people are doing um, these substances because they're kind of self medicating some of their emotional problems, yeah. and thereby they're not treating those. You know, yeah. like the Azam said, they said, "Well, it's not. We don't care about the forty year old dude who wants to smoke a joint in his basement and feel like he's young. Nobody cares about that." But we right. don't want to miss, like, what about a teenager who's got underlying depression, anxiety, who's covering it up with a substance, any substance, I don't care if it's Oreo cookies or weed, but they're not addressing the actual problem. Yeah. And while they're doing that, the problem grows. So a lot of these kids will come to me going, well, I'm not going to stop smoking my weed even if we do treat my anxiety. I'm like, oh, that's fine. I don't care. Whatever. But let's treat the anxiety. Because... Just using the weed is like spray painting over a rust spot on a car. That's it's not going to work. It looks nice, mm-hmm. and don't get me wrong. In my 1978 Volvo, like I wouldn't care, you know. Yeah. But in general, if you want to do it properly, you roll up your sleeves, get out the sandpaper, three layers of primer. Like I know it's a lot more work, but that's how you do it properly, and that's how most things are. Yeah. Once we start treating the anxiety, a lot of times uh, these kids will come back and they'll say, "Hey, how's your weed smoking doing?" Because I don't really belabor the point. I don't reprimand them for it, but a lot of them will say, yeah, I don't really need it as much anymore. I don't do it as much anymore, which is interesting. Yeah. And, yeah. and you made mention of it, basically all these uh, addictive issues coming stemming from early childhood trauma. Yeah. You kind of alluded to that. Yeah. I don't know if you had uh, deeper thoughts on, on the a, matter. A lot of it is, you know, whether it's childhood trauma or just the pressures, you know, there's a lot more pressures nowadays than there used to be. I think we all agree on that front. Mm-hmm. And their performance pressures and social pressures and middle, especially in middle school is kind of where this thing starts. That's where kids become aware that they're different or they have a deficit based on comparisons with somebody else. And that's even easier to do now because the comparison is not only in your classroom, but it's also on like the social media. Well, all of a sudden you're comparing yourself to a million other people. 
And not only are people in your classroom telling you you should be you know, this way or that way, you've got a billion other people on social media adding to that pressure and that concern. So it's natural, I think, that kids of that age group find themselves in that predicament of like, wow, how do I deal with this stress? You know, they don't really have the, the tools to manage sort of self-esteem issues that show up when there's so much social pressure. Um, and a lot of parents are busy working and you're at an age range where not only do you have social pressures, but the other really common feature for the, this group of teenagers is impulse control problems. Yeah. So you have a teenage brain that doesn't have control over its own impulses and you have self-esteem issues and you have access to products that claim to cure the world. That's where the problem is, you know, and mm -hmm. that's where I always say, yeah, that's where we got to really focus our efforts is really catch those kids in middle school yeah. and make sure that we provide them with those tools to deal with those pressures. Yeah. And, and you made mention of, uh, you know, obviously we don't want to have them go down the, the bad path of, of uh, hanging out with Johnny in Locker 27. Right. Mm -hmm. uh, and then you also talked about, you know, decriminalization versus legalization of these. Right. Um, you know, is that going to take away the stigma or the, uh, yeah. I guess, the allure of being, you know, bad, being. Right, uh, right, being, right. I think at the end of the day, you know, when I ask patients, hey, why do you do a certain substance? They're past, like, the allure or the recreational component. They're just suffering from downright nasty mental health problems. Yeah. And they just need a fix. They don't really care what anybody else is thinking, you know. Mm -hmm. Now, coming forward and getting treatment, obviously, that's more difficult because they do live in the society where it's frowned upon and the stigma. It's getting better than it was 10 years ago. Yeah. But I still get patients that come in and they say, they'll show me their my business card. It'll be all ratty, like it's been in their pocket for a year. And they'll say, how long have you had my business card for? And they're like, oh, about six months or a year. I was just too ashamed to come in because every other doctor I've gone to, when I tell them I have an addiction, they chastise me, they kick me out, they tell me I'm a junkie. And these people get really gun shy and they go hide. They go disappear for six months, you know. Um, until they finally come back and when they feel like they can be open with their problem and feel like they're not getting that judgmental approach, all of a sudden they open up. And I've had patients tell me, wow, you're like the first doc in like the last 20 that's actually cared to sit and listen to my story and didn't just criticize me for being addicted to whatever, you know, mm. which is interesting because that's what we're supposed to be doing. Right. Is like, let's get to the meat of the problem. Let's not criticize the, the obese person for eating too many Oreo cookies for self-control or right. the heroin addict who accidentally ran into that. You know, when, when you look at what is underlying on these pro people's problems, there are some real primordial kind of needs that are not being met. And so one kid who was asked, asked me, he was like, what, what does heroin do for you? He must've been 16 or so. I said, what's, what does heroin do for you? And you, what, what do you like about it? And his answer is when I use heroin, I feel like I'm being held in my mother's arms. That's pretty hardcore. Yeah, that's deep. And you tell that kid who grew up with no family and no support and no love and no nurturing, like, you don't deserve that feeling. Like, you can't do that. That's primordial. That's human. Yeah. That kid deserves... The fact that he found a suboptimal way of doing it, not cool, not good, not fun, not the ideal way of doing not it. Not healthy. Right? Yeah. But it's not like you can just find him a mother and give him nurturing. All You can't prescribe that. So I don't blame them for, like, finding some product that gave them that primordial feeling yeah we're just kind of bummed because now they're stuck on it and we have to find a way out of it you know yeah a lot of them will say if i'd ever known that it would have lead to this much trouble i would have never started you know hindsight is 2020 definitely and on the topic of heroin addiction mm -hmm. um you also are i think you're you run suboxone clinics is yeah. that right or you used to oh no well suboxone is just a one of the tools that i use okay. to get people off of their um 
opiates, you know. Okay. But it's either Suboxone or Methadone. So I, yeah. I, I'm the medical Can we director. actually define those or, like, differentiate yeah, those two? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. At this point in my education, they're not clear what, which is which. And yeah, what totally. So when people are on opiates, what happens is they initially take an opiate for pain control, and then they realize it works for depression. Uh, they become, the first thing they get is they become dependent which is just dependence. Dependence doesn't mean addiction. It just means dependence. Mm -hmm. Insulin-dependent diabetics are insulin-dependent. They're not insulin-addicted. But if they stop, there's going to be hell to pay. And dependency on opioids is the same. You stop, you get physical withdrawals. That's all it means. That happens within about a week or two or three of starting. Mm -hmm. The second problem that That will happen mm -hmm. to anyone who's even if they're not an addict. Exactly. Three weeks and they get all these withdrawal symptoms. Exactly. Yep. Because a lot of people, they, they need medicines for, like, they have had hip surgeries or whatever and mm-hmm. or been in a train wreck, you know. They need pain management for a month or two, and they become dependent, mm-hmm. and which I've, we accept. I've also heard people kind of describe uh, somebody who's not addicted to not have those symptoms of withdrawal coming off it, but you're saying that's, that's not really the case. That's not really, because they go in this order. Number one is dependency. Number two that happens is your brain realizes that its receptors keep getting used up with painkillers. So the brain is smart and it thinks to itself, well, clearly you must need more receptors. So it builds more receptors. And then the patient thinks to himself that five milligrams of Percocet used to work, but it doesn't work so well anymore. But 10 milligrams works now. And the brain builds more receptors and the patient starts taking more medicine. That's tolerance, that's problem number two. First problem is dependency. And the second problem is tolerance. Now we're building more and more receptors because it it takes more and more medicine to get the same job done. And then problem three is addiction. And addiction is a behavior. It's more of a why, not a what. So Mm -hmm. now we're using it because I've got depression and it's helping with my depression. Now I'm using it and I can't get enough of it. So I'm doing the behavior of getting it on the streets or going to different dentists when I have something going on or, or seeing if a friend has any leftover. That's the behavior and that's the addiction part. Mm-hmm. And that's a vastly different thing than dependency. Once you're at all three of those stages, you have a huge problem because it only escalates and gets worse. It gets worse because your body becomes more tolerant to it, so it takes more. And the withdrawals become more and more intense whenever you try to stop, so naturally we don't try to stop. Mm -hmm. And so the behavior is such that you start seeking it in other places or you get stronger and stronger medications, you know? Used to be Vicodin, now it's Percocet, now it's OxyContin, and now it's fentanyl, right? It doesn't stop. Oh, the doctor stopped prescribing stuff? Guess what, it's not just gonna wash away, they're gonna go to heroin. So what naturally has happened with all these doctors just up and quitting everything, just the pendulum swung dramatically to the wrong side, yeah. where everybody just kind of... Over-prescribing, and yeah. then they said, and now oh, they, we should never prescribe anything so they, ever. Yes, they yeah. inappropriately over-prescribed, and now they are inappropriately under-prescribing, and they're ditching people that we have created a problem. These A lot of these patients have iatrogenic addiction, iatrogenic dependency, iatrogenic tolerance, and iatrogenic addiction. Nice. That's our fault. We can't just dump them. We have to take them and work with them and and unravel some of that stuff and find different options. So that's when they come to me when they're taking. I've had patients come from doctors, no kidding, taking 500 milligrams of oxycodone per day mm-hmm. in addition to fentanyl suckers, in addition to Valium pills, in addition to sleeping medications. All these things mixed in together which are a recipe for death, which is why, you know, 60,000 people a year die from opiates. Well, it's not just opioids. It's opioids mixed with benzos and alcohol. That's That's the trifecta. That's the real combo, yeah. Yeah. And if you have two of those three, heaven forbid all three of them, that's the death sentence. So they come to me on all these list of medications. I will put them on one of two products, either buprenorphine, uh, which is Suboxone, Or methadone, one of the two. Okay. Now, methadone, so I'm the medical director for Denver Recovery Group, and we have a bunch of methadone clinics that patients can come to. Methadone um, will basically lock onto the brain very tightly and very long-lasting. It's a full agonist. It sits in every receptor, mm-hmm. and it basically sticks so tightly that it gums up the mu receptor okay. to the point where pretty much they don't have any desire to use anything else. So we've now sidestepped. We've sidestepped dependencies from heroin to methadone. Is there any you know, psychogenic effects? Psychogenic, or? it will help control sort of their moods initially too. 
just like the the regular opioids did. Yeah. But here's the trick. The, the direction is this. You have to sidestep dependencies from heroin to methadone because you can't wean off heroin. It doesn't work. Yep. So we've but now you're de- taking methadone. Yep, yep. Now you're on yep. methadone. So we, we've just replaced one dependency with another, which yep. is fine because we can control methadone. Okay. However, we have now not eliminated but started to eliminate the addiction they're no longer in the street. They're no longer spending money on heroin. They're no longer, you know, doing the stuff they're not supposed to be doing. They're now being prescribed methadone. So the addictive behavior is now starting to get into check. They're doing counseling. They were doing therapy with us every day. They're getting their methadone dose every single day. They come to the clinic, get dosed, and then go to work. It provides them kind of a routine, a regularity that a lot of patients like. Mm-hmm. So methadone works very well for that. Yeah. Suboxone came along. Is a very similar principle, and it's there's a big misperception between which one works better and which one is worse. They're both effective. Okay. Some people react better with one and some with the other, and I've seen it go both ways. You know, yeah. I used to think Suboxone was the be-all, end-all, mm-hmm. but it really isn't because some people, it, it's not strong enough, and some people need that daily control. Some people need that daily monitoring, you know, yeah. and the methadone sometimes does a better job. But the Suboxone is very similar, and then it comes into the brain. But it's not a full agonist. It's a partial agonist. Yep, I follow. Yep. So methadone is like a full agonist. It's like a wire plug, like a lamp plug with two metal prongs on it. Sure. So you can kill them technically if you do too much. So you got to be careful on methadone yeah. that you dose just enough to suppress their cravings and their withdrawals, but, but not, not so much to kill them. Right, exactly. Is that, is that what is going to mm-hmm. kill you on methadone? Yep, exactly. Okay. Respiratory suppression. Yeah. Now, Suboxone is a partial agonist. So it's like a lamp plug with one metal prong and one plastic prong. Okay. So we actually do jam up every receptor. You don't jam every receptor with methadone because they'd be dead. That's an overdose. Okay. But you do jam every receptor with Suboxone because it's only a partial agonist. You can jam up every single plug Mm -hmm. and generally not kill them because not all of them are being fully stimulated because one prong is plastic, you know? Sure. So what that does uh, is, and Suboxone sticks very tightly in that receptor, much tighter than most opioids do. Mm. So it's a competitive thing. Yeah. Once Suboxone is in there, it just sits in there jammed up. It's like taking a wire, like a lamp plug, dipping it in super glue and shoving it in the wall. It's not going to come out anytime soon. Yeah. If um, once they're on it, if another opioid comes in, say they take a handful of oxycodone or shoot up some heroin, it just bounces right off. On either one of these or just Yeah, just either one of them. Suboxone. Exactly, yeah. exactly. Both of them. Yeah. Mm-hmm. More on Suboxone, there's some differences there. Um, but in general, the mu receptor is already plugged up and gummed up with a product like Suboxone. So it's kind of like a cast around your brain, you know? Because mm. we always say, well, how do we, how do we fix... How do we fix the dependency? Well, the addiction we we fix by getting them off the street so they're not buying stuff illicitly anymore, by treating their depression with Prozac and other medications, by doing counseling with them. But how do we get rid of the dependency and the tolerance? How do we fix that part? Yeah. Well, here's how we do it. Again, it's always the same as every other part of your body. How do we fix a broken bone? We don't. We just stick a cast around it, keep the bone ends from moving, and magically, the body heals itself. Yep. Two months later, you take the cast off, your bone's healed, you know? Okay. How do we heal dependency and tolerance? We don't. We put a cast on the brain so it's quiet. Mm-hmm. And this then is the slow- suboxone. Yeah, or, exactly. The suboxone methadone. methadone. And slowly over time, the brain thinks to itself, why again do I have all these receptors? Everything's quiet. Everything's jammed up. There's no you know, opiates coming and going and coming and going and coming and going and coming and going anymore. It's all quiet, so I don't think I need all these receptors. And it will involute a lot of those receptors on its own. Mm-hmm. So over a period of 6 to 9 to 12 months, your brain will involute a lot of those mu receptors again. Yes, they'll all be jammed up with Suboxone still. Okay. But still... You're, you're getting rid of the tolerance. So that tolerance will go down over like a year or so. Bones heal in two months. Brains do not heal in two months. Yeah. take a lot longer. But if you can get it locked down to where it's not moving, the brain will start to get rid of all those. Re- the reason the brain develops all these extra receptors, the tolerance, if you will, yeah. is because the opioids going on and off and on and off and on and off and on and off. That constant falling off and going back on is what triggers growth of the mu receptor in the first place which is why short-acting medications 
generally produce tolerance quicker than long-acting medications. Yeah. And Suboxone being the ultimate long-acting medication, a half-life of like seven days, hmm. basically jams it up so tightly that the brain doesn't do, it just sits there like a cast around it. So someone's coming in for Suboxone about once a week? They're coming in with Suboxone, you know, pretty much once a month. Oh, okay. So initially I get them on, so, uh, they have to come off their heroin. They go through nasty withdrawals for about 36 hours. They have to do that before you can't start to do on that the before. Suboxone first. Exactly, exactly. That? Because Suboxone is so much tighter binding, it's a real competitor. So if it comes in and there's still a, a piece of heroin left over, it's going to kick the heroin off. So that's a precipitated withdrawal. So that's so uncomfortable mm. that we don't start Suboxone until most of the heroin particles are kind of drifted off on their own. <clears throat> Just that, by having elevated mm -hmm. levels in your blood, basically, then you just feel super uncomfortable and have yep. a bunch of side effects from exactly. that. Exactly. So, effects. yeah, they have to stop doing heroin. I give, and for about 36 hours, they can't do any heroin. I will give them withdrawal medications. So, clonidine is a great one, or hyoscyamine helps with the heebie jeebies and the stomach cramps and the diarrhea. Yeah. Maybe a little bit of Valium or clonazepam, which is safe because they're not doing heroin in that withdrawal period but you just give them a couple of pills mm -hmm. to help settle their brain down for that 36 hour. They come in, in horrible withdrawals. We have a scale that we use to measure how bad. Once they're here, we'll give them a little piece of Suboxone, let them sit for 20, 30 minutes, see how they're feeling, give them a little bit more, that's the induction. And over about two or three hours, I'll build up the amount of Suboxone and it'll go to the brain and really, like as it settles in on all those receptors, eliminates all their withdrawals. So usually when they leave, they're feeling pretty back to normal. All the withdrawals are gone, their cravings are mostly gone. And then the next day or two, I'll tweak the dose a little bit to get it to the right milligrams, you know, Yeah. to get that yeah, cast cool. level. And it's I, like anything I've else. Always, uh, it's so funny because this is something I've always always heard of Suboxone, but I never mm -hmm. really you know, considered the details of how uh, oh, it works day to day. It, the wow factor yeah. is amazing because the biggest fear for them is the withdrawals. And if I can say, listen, your withdrawals are going to wash away within like 30 minutes all you have to do is survive 36 hours and I'll pump you full of withdrawal meds to help you get through that. And you watch enough Netflix at night and you get your relative to drive you in. I don't want you driving on the roads and withdrawals. Yeah. Um, you get here within 30 minutes. You need to know that most of that's going to go away and you're going to feel a ton better. So for 36 hours, how you're they're here once so yeah twice, the induction or, day know. they start and then i usually f uh, talk to them on video chat that's why i do a lot of telemedicine <clears throat> yeah and we touch base the next day i'll make some adjustments again the really important for addicts is to not self-adjust they've been their whole life has been how do i feel now do we need a percocet now maybe if i can later what about saturday mode say one now yeah they're like masters self-adjusters yeah, <laughs> that constant like activity it, then once they're on Suboxone, the rule is they have to relinquish control, let me run their medicine. I promise them I'll run it for them, but they have to take their hands off the wheel and just run their lives. And that's really hard for them because they'll call me up and be like, but well, what do I do now? Yeah. <laughs> well, go get a job. I don't know. Right. Let me know how you're feeling, if you're getting withdrawals or not, or if you're too drowsy. Even if you think you know what you need to do with Suboxone, don't do it. Just let me do it for you. That's where the telemedicine comes in really important in Leah texting. Yeah. They give me that feedback. They're like, oh, I'm getting some slight withdrawals. You know, I know you told me not to take more, so I'm just letting you know. Like, what do I do now? And then I'll tell them, okay, that's legit. I want you to add just another milligram or two and then report back tonight. Let me know how you're doing. And then slowly I'll get the right dose for them. And that's the dose they take every single day. Because once, once we figure out the dose... They're locked down. I'll see them in a week after that. If that's stable, I'll see them two weeks later. If that's stable, I'll see them at once a month. Provides them a great ability to have a life, Yeah. travel, be able to work. They have to show up for urine testing. People always ask, well, what's how often do you do urine testing? Well, it depends on the situation. Right. If they're stable. You're saying you're not going to give them yeah. your medication, Suboxone, mm -hmm. if they're on... Uh, other opiates but well yeah. but you have to remember if they're on suboxone and they're still still doing other opiates maybe i haven't done my job yeah 
No, I get it. Just like yeah. methadone. I'm like, yeah. well, <laughs> if you're doing opiates, maybe I need to make sure you take more Suboxone to suppress that. And they're just ashamed to ask about it. It's like, well, maybe I'll just do a little bit of Suboxone. We always want to do the correct amount. Yeah. There's no too much or too little. Like you want to do the correct amount. And if it's not, then I don't want to penalize them for you know, relapsing, I want to recognize that maybe I need to do a better job at controlling that symptom a little bit. Yeah. So how does this work with methadone? Methadone is very similar, but it takes a lot longer. It takes a bit longer. So they start, we start them at 30 milligrams and then every day we allow them to ramp up a little bit. And then it's a daily thing. It's a daily thing. Exactly. And then they will, they'll get better slowly. So initially they'll say, well, it helped me for three or four hours, but then I got withdrawals Mm -hmm. and then they'll still use heroin in addition to methadone. But every day, it'll last longer and longer and longer. After about a week, they'll come in going, okay, now I'm good until about 8 p.m., hmm. and then I get withdrawals. Yeah. And then soon enough, they're like, okay, now I'm good until 5 in the morning, so I'm almost there. And with methadone, the goal is, like with Suboxone, we're looking for 24 hours of control. Yeah. I don't go by milligrams. I go by hours. I want 24 hours because it's different for different people. You can't predict who needs how much. I know. I was just about to say, it seems Mm -hmm. like Suboxo and just all the, on paper, it sounds so much better. Right. You're saying it doesn't work work for everybody. Because some people actually, it's not just the medication, but they need that um, accountability. They need that, that location. They need that therapy every day. And they need the check-in, you know, and that's a critical part for a lot of them where they need to be showing up every day as an accountability thing um, to get their dose, get a small amount of um, therapy, uh, pat on their back and off they go to work and, and celebrate another day, you know, and some people, Suboxone doesn't hold them. Try the max dose and they're like, I'm still getting cravings. I'm still using heroin, you know, so yeah, it doesn't work for everybody, unfortunately. But the dose is important, and it's important to recognize it's different for different people. And this is so, this is the same, by the way, for addiction as it is for mental health. Completely different than anything else. So, the worse your cholesterol is, the more medicine you need. The worse your blood pressure is, the more medicine. That makes perfect sense. All of the mental health meds and the addiction meds don't make any sense. You could be a tiny person needing a huge dose, or a big dude needing a tiny dose, huge abuser using a small dose of Suboxone or Methadone, or vice versa. So we don't know. It's unpredictably unpredictable. So you always start on a low dose and you always ramp up to the lowest necessary, but you can't predict, you know? Yeah. That's wild. Yeah. It's, it's a, it seems like a wild ride for even you yeah. just kind of there watching it all it's happen difficult. And, and, you know, trying yeah. to, trying to, you know, pull the puppet strings a little bit. Like for most heroin, if you look at methadone, we start them at 30 milligrams. That's very reasonable. And then we ramp it up. A lot of people tend to fall in that 100 to 150 milligram zone. That's a classic zone, not the correct zone, but a typical <laughs> zone. Okay. But there are some people that all they need is 50 milligrams and they're done. And there are some people that need 250 milligrams to control. It's just how their metabolism. Yeah. Here's the scary part. Some patients only need 20 milligrams to control them. And I start at 30 because yeah. that's kind of standard. Like you can almost overdose them on just one single dose of methadone, not even know it. Yeah. And think to yourself, wow, how did that happen? They're a huge abuser of heroin and they almost got overdosed on 30 milligrams. What does that look like if, if you give them They get over sedated, yeah. they, they start nodding off, they come back the next day saying, I can't even keep my head open, I'm so suppressed. Well, the danger there is opiate, you know, some respiratory suppression, right? right? Yeah. And we realized by watching them very closely, oh, my God, you're one of those hypersensitive people, but we just don't have the luxury of knowing that ahead of time. Yeah, wow. How do you know? It's it's hard. In terms of opiates versus alcohol or Mm -hmm. other drugs, um, how does does your practice break down in terms of your census and... If you had to just assign yeah. one person, you know, this person's an opiate mm-hmm. addict, this person's a marijuana addict, this person's an yeah. alcohol, yeah. and then maybe another category for just mm-hmm. completely a wash of, of a multi-drug addiction. Right. How does right. it break down for, in Usually terms of percentages? Usually it breaks down, for? again, all comes back to their mental health problem. So mm-hmm. if their mental health problem is one of depression and sadness and grief and poor family Um, connections, then oftentimes those people gravitate towards the opioids and the benzos, okay, the Xanax and the Valium, because they want things that calm them down, you know? Yeah. And they'll take those downers. 
they'll take the meds that help kind of relieve those kinds of symptoms, you know. Mm -hmm. um, sometimes they'll mix the, the downers with the uppers. So sometimes they have to take so much opioid to calm down their depression, but then it's so much that they get kind of like really drowsy. So they'll take some methamphetamine to kind of pick them up again on the other hand, you know? Yeah. And so they do, they do this juggling act where they're, they're trying to offset the uppers with the downers. And if you look at the websites like blue light and some of these, there's a lot of conversations between addicts like, well, this is how we mix and match. They're like chemists, you know, they mix and match their drugs. Yeah. You need this much if you're going to do this and be careful, you know, like they'll give each other advice on how much upper to mix with downers. But the, the usually if they're suffering from a lot of the depression stuff, they tend to gravitate towards like that opioid benzo category or they gravitate towards the alcohol, which also kind of numbs out the depression. Alcohol does a good job at numbing out the anxiety too. Mm -hmm. Sometimes they will do both, but usually they tend to do kind of one category or the other, you know? Yeah. So they'll do, um, they'll do more of the, the, the kind of, they stick with the alcohol or they'll rotate what we call addiction rotation well it used to be alcohol yeah. but then now they started doing opiates and like yeah i used to do alcohol i don't do that is much it a anymore. rotation or like a progression oftentimes it's a rotation hmm. but you're right there can be a progression because most of them will generally start more with alcohol once they end up with opioids especially once they end up with heroin and especially especially if they're less than 25 years old hmm. then they kind of stick in the opioid category they rarely go from heroin back to like only doing alcohol, you know, mm -hmm. once they're at heroin, especially if they're younger, they're kind of permanently stuck there. Yeah. But then the alcohol ones, they use that a lot for more of the social anxiety, um, also for depression and so forth. And they kind of ram into sort of they kind of get mired down into that, you know. Yeah. The people that use just meth and cocaine oftentimes are people that have more social sort of dysfunctions and it gives them that high, that feel good good feeling that they like, you know? Yeah. Um, and sometimes they'll stick with just meth. Right now there's this product called meth 2.0, which is a cheaper, more effective methamphetamine that's all over the streets right now. So there's all these different chemicals that yeah. everybody's trying out and they're mixing and matching things. Yeah. So how much do you see of any one of these things in your practice? I say the majority is opiates. Yeah. I'd say 80% is going to be And opiate. that's not just going to be heroin. That's going to be pills of all yeah. kinds. Here's the crazy yeah. part. I get a patient in, in, my, in the clinic and they'll say, well, I've been doing heroin one or two grams a day for whatever. And I'll say, okay, let's, what we always do urine tests. Let's send it off for LCMS, GCMS, gas chromatography. When it comes back, let's look at what's actually in it. What do you think is in it? And they're like, well, it's heroin. I'm like, okay, let's find out. I'll say over 50% of the time, it's not. not. Yeah. Oftentimes, it's either zero heroin, and it's all like codeine or hydrocodone or oxymorphone or fentanyl. Yep. Or some whatever they sweep off the floor. Mm -hmm. And it's like a minority is even heroin. Yeah. It, not always, but I'm saying it's surprising how often I'll say, come here, look at the screen. Here's the stuff that's in your urine. And they're like, oh, my gosh, I had no idea. And there's fentanyl in it. And they didn't tell me it was fentanyl in there. Yeah. Well, they don't know. And their dealers don't know. And their dealer's dealer don't know. And the distributor doesn't care. Right. We're way down the line by We're this way point. way down yeah. the line. Yeah. Yeah. And that's the scary part. And I'm assuming the same goes for cocaine. It can be mm -hmm. really anything in yep. there. It's cocaine, probably meth. not pure Colombian right. shale. Nope, yeah. exactly. Or they'll mix it with some benzos to give you a little bit more of a calming effect while you're doing the meth so you don't come out of your skin too much, you know? Right. They do this homegrown chemistry thing. Yeah. Some addicts will even be wise enough to get a dipstick test at, uh, at the store and actually test their product before they use it so they know if there's fentanyl in it, for example. Yeah. Which is, which is a bummer because it usually tells me, why aren't they just in the clinic trying to figure out the deal in the first place, you yeah. know, but they're desperate yeah, and they get chastised and they yeah. get judged. And so they'd rather stay away than it's kind of like the devil, you know? Yeah. Or yeah. their relatives are like, Oh, you shouldn't do methadone. Methadone is like legalized heroin. That's yeah. always the greatest thing to say, you know, yeah, there's a pushback, isn't there? Yeah, yeah. There's a lot of pushback. And, and people say, well, all you've done is replaced, you know, heroin with methadone. And I'm like, hallelujah. Yes, absolutely. That's exactly what we've done. <laughs> Thank you for finally recognizing that. But it's not in a bad way. It's in a good way. We have three problems, dependency, tolerance, and addiction. 
Well, we're sidestepping to methadone. Now at least we can get rid of the addictive behaviors. Now we're stuck with tolerance and dependency. Well, you can only get rid of tolerance and dependency one of two ways. Lock them up in jail or put them on a long-acting medication like methadone and then very gradually taper it down. Yeah. Those are the only two ways of doing it. Unless they have a magical third way of doing it that they're not telling us. People out there who are claiming, hey, you're just re- it's just legalized heroin, um, really don't have the right to talk. Right. That's the well, problem. So when, when somebody decides to seek treatment, mm-hmm. I'm assuming that happens in a number of different ways. Sometimes it's yeah. legal consequences yeah. some, or financial consequences. It's, mm-hmm. um, I mean, I guess the way I always thought of addiction... Um, as a definition, I know you kind of rattle off a, 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 yeah. a fancy definition earlier, but the way I've thought about it is just not to be able to stop in light of consequences. Those could That's be right. health consequences. They could be relational, That's relationship right. consequences, Absolutely. financial, work, yeah, legal, whatever it is. Yeah. Um, and exactly. but then eventually, somebody they they do they yeah. they decide to seek help. And yeah. is that how you're getting? Most of your uh, patients is is yeah. right away in the the throes of it, as yep. and they just how do they find you? Do they all get referred sorts, to you? All sorts. Yeah. Here's the most common one, is word of mouth. Yeah, because of the judgmentalism and the chastising that a lot of us as doctors do, unfortunately, these people will shy away from all costs. They'll try everything on the street. Mm-hmm. Uh, they'll even try Suboxone on the street, but they're not doing it right. So it's not working, you know? Yeah. They don't have the support, and they, nobody's treating their underlying depression, so it doesn't work. Here's how they find me. And I ask every single patient, hey, how'd you find me? Yeah. And here's the answer. Pretty much every single patient says, oh, you helped my friend get free from heroin, so I thought maybe, and he, he said you are really cool about it, and I thought maybe you could help me too, and like nobody else will help me out there. and. That's how 90% of them find me as personal referral. Yeah. Just based on other patients. It's on the underground. I've talked to addicts and they're like, oh, yeah, your name's all over the underground on the internet. Like, we all know you and you're the guy to go to to help and, and get rid of this stuff, you know? Mm-hmm. So that's really cool. I even asked one guy, I said, how'd you find me? And he's like, oh, my drug dealer gave me your card. Nice. <laughs> so that's really your nice. Your know? strong. Yeah. He's like, if you want more heroin, I can give it to you. If you need a guy to get you off this stuff, nice. here's a dude to get you off this stuff, you know? Nice. And that's awesome. And now I do <laughs> that's get... That's a good drug right, dealer, yeah. <laughs> right, exactly. But the stigma has gone down to the point where people finally feel comfortable saying, hey, here's a safe zone. And I'll tell them, look, I'll say, look, all you have to do is show up. Let's just have a conversation. Like, I'm not going to tell... You don't have to stop, everyone. Like, you can come in... Don't come in high as a kite. It's hard to have a conversation that way. But let's come on in. Let's have a chit-chat. You ask me your questions. I'll tell you straight up how it works. And you can decide if this is, if this is the right time. If it's not, I will welcome you in a year when it is the right time. Like, whatever you want to do or come up with more questions, you know, whatever. Like, ask me stuff. Like, yeah. I've heard X, Y, like, yeah, whatever. That's very cool. open to that. Yeah. Um, in dealing with, um, you know, people with chronic pain mm-hmm. or addiction or mental health, and I'm thinking of the, the perspective of a family med doc who's not trained in addiction medicine uh-huh. and, um, or not, um, you know, just well-versed in the subject, Yeah. What, what advice would you have for them? You know, if you're, number one, my most important advice is on a disease that kills 60,000 people a year, and inf- incidentally, influenza kills about the same amount. Yeah, wow. Well, if we're getting trained on yeah. flu shots and how to treat influenza and what medications we use that are anti-flu and blah, 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 Maybe we should spend that kind of time on the education too. Yeah, so that's you're saying it's number. worth it to it's take a little time to, to get trained time. in this stuff because yeah, it's pretty prevalent and it's <clears throat> pretty deadly. Yeah. It's pretty deadly. Uh, and I think even if you don't practice it, you know, we get trained in in obstetrics and gynecology, even though we may not necessarily do obstetrics, but it's good for us to be aware of it because totally. when we treat pregnant women with mood medications or blood pressure meds or whatever, you have to be aware of the consequences, you know? Yeah. And to not be aware of addiction is a real fault because it's in your face. A lot of pay, a lot of my colleagues will say, oh, why do you do addiction? That's kind of like, ooh, gross. Why would you do that stuff? You know, I'm like, mm-hmm. I would never do that. And I say to them, you know, for the same, well, why don't you do, you know, OB or Gyne? Oh, well, I don't like doing that. I just refer it out, you know? Well, yeah, but why don't you refer out addiction? Like it is in front of your face. Just because you don't 
choose to look and see that it's there, like you can see a pregnant lady, I get it, that's easy to spot, and you know, well, I'm gonna refer you to a gynecologist. Yeah. But you're not, you're not seeing addiction because you're not looking, and it's about this close in front of your face, and you're not seeing it. Yeah. That's the problem. Whether you choose not to treat it as your own preference, like I don't care, but at least discover it, yeah. and then non-judgmentally refer it. So totally. like a lot of the ER docs have gotten superbly good at this, even my pharmacists around town, they're great. They, they, they'll pick up on people who are getting prescriptions over and over and over and say, by the way, just so you know, like I know you're going through a lot and this may be legit and all, but if you ever need help getting off of some of this stuff long-term, here's a card, here's a guy that'll help you kind of, and not only just get off of it, but maybe find better pain management, what I call pain management done correctly. I get a lot of them. Mm -hmm. They have true pain issues. You can't deny it. They have 500 bolts and screws and rods in their body. You're like, well, that deserves pain management, but maybe not with 400 milligrams of oxycodone, you know? Yeah. And so for a family practitioner to really learn, number one, look for it, ask for it, recognize it. How do we do it with suicidal ideation? We are taught you specifically have to ask the patient, you know, are you suicidal? Because they're not going to tell you if you don't want to ask. Mm -hmm. Well, what's wrong with doing that with addiction and mental health? Ask them straight up. Hey, totally non-judgmentally. Some people have issues with this or that. Like, is that an issue for you? Let me know. We'll, we'll get some treatment for you, you know? Don't make it a big deal. I love it. And then patients, yeah. oftentimes they'll be like, oh, it's kind of a safe zone. They're not, they're not judgy. Sometimes it's just the vibe. You yeah. Don't, yeah. When you say well, that, it has to be a safe zone. It can't, you can't a manufacture zone. a fake safe no, zone. It has exactly. To actually. Exactly. Be one. Yeah. And I'll tell patients, I'll say, look, man, you know, you got an oxy from ten different doctors. Hey, just talk to me. What can I help you with? How do we get through this? Um, you know, what's going on? How can I help you get the true pain management that you need? At the same time, holy moly, man, there's a lot of oxy from different doctors showing up here. Like, what do I need to do to help you out here? Like, you talk to me. What can I do for you? Um, if anything, you just let me know, you know? Yeah. And even for others, I had a girl who, uh, you know, I saw that she's getting 30 Xanax every month from her psychiatrist. And I said, well, okay. But I didn't initially. I said, first of all, so how often do you use Xanax? When do you need it? And she's like, you know, honestly, maybe once or twice a week. It's not that much. I see, but you're, you're, you're getting a field every month. Like, what's happening? Talk to me. Is somebody at home that needs those meds? Is there anybody else that we can maybe reach out to, you know? Mm -hmm. Turned out, yeah, oh, yeah, my uncle, he's got some problems, and I wonder if he's taken some of those, you know? Right. I said, hey, you can reach out to him, too, you know? I'll give him my card and just let him know. Just have a conversation, you know? You don't have to. Yeah. But be safe and, and don't be part of why he's going to be dead in the future, you know? Definitely. Yeah. Offer him help. Well, yeah. Well, listen, you've been so generous with your time. Oh, Amazingly generous. Thank man. you so absolutely. much. And, and you've given us stuff. so many gems here. Um, I want to give you an opportunity to, yeah. um, uh, I, I, if you'd like to uh, plug anything. I know you, you were talking about having a uh, video blog. Oh, yeah. I do have a little video blog, yeah. The Addiction Doc Tell people on where YouTube. To go to find yeah, you. I just love doing, I just do little chats and talks. People ask me questions. I'm like, okay. Let me do a quick 10-minute little chit-chat on some topic, whether it's Suboxone or methadone like we talked about. Cool. And I just try to do fun places and do a little vlog. And, and if it's interesting, do that. The most important thing really for people is just call, get in, have a conversation. Heritage Hills, addiction, medicine, and mental health is what I am. You can just give us a call and say, hey, I may not be ready to stop or I'm not ready to address. But I just want information. You know, That's yeah. all it is. Come in, get information, and you decide what you want to do down the road. Yeah. Um, being educated about your options in a non-judgmental kind of place like that's what. And the same goes for, for other providers, doctors listening to this too. You guys are welcome to call. I give people full uh, ability to call me on my cell phone, other providers, and say, hey, I've got a patient in the hospital. Like a surgeon will call me off the cuff and say, I, I think they've got an addiction or a dependency problem. Like, what do I do? Mm. That's totally cool. Yeah, I'll guide you through it. I'll give you my number. You just call. I'll, I'll give you that that feedback, and you can send the patient over. Reassure them. Hey, you've got an issue. Let's. I'm going to take care of your orthopedic problem. But I invite you to talk to this guy, and together we're going to make it a team effort to really get these things under control. You know. Yeah. You deserve that. Yeah. Yeah. Amazing. I, I stepped on it when you were talking about it earlier. What is the? Uh, where can they find you on YouTube or your? Oh, your yeah, it's your called the, the Addiction Doc. 
Okay. That's your a, channel. Yeah, that's the channel. Exactly. Oh. It's a couple down and the you'll see it. Doc. And I try to get a video log in there every, you know, a couple once or twice a month or so. Just something short and brief, you know. Um, cool. And I've got a blog as well. Um, I think it's um, actually the addiction doc on the website. And okay. um, but otherwise, Heritage Hills Addiction Medicine and Mental Health is probably the easiest way to find it. Um, or just call our office straight up and say, "Hey, need to have a chit chat," you know. Awesome. One direction or the other. So cool. Yeah. So this has been. Uh, I mean, I could talk to you forever. I'm sure you could. <laughs> I, could I could listen to you talk and ask you questions forever. It seems like you could keep going. Much. I talk so. way too much. Oh no no no! <laughs> it's good. It's, I mean, this is uh, mostly uh, for. Uh, students and people yeah. just interested in the field to hear, but it, it really goes out to any, absolutely anyone absolutely. and everyone. We're you know, uh, yeah. I can't tell who's listening, but love having students call. But so this has been a kind of a um, uh, a heavy podcast in in some ways. So it, yeah. maybe we can end on a lighter note. Do you have any funny stories with patients or just uh, you know, or maybe other I providers? Think, I think really the the most awesome part really is. When you see patients come in or parents coming in saying, you know, thanks for listening to my kid and thanks for doing your best to save his life, you know, mm -hmm. that's really, really powerful because they're desperate. Parents always want the best for their kids. It's hard to find providers because there's nobody out there that really does the combination of addiction medicine and psychiatry. I wish there was. Mm -hmm. I always encourage students, like, look at this field, man. This is like something you can do in addition to your regular practice. It's not that difficult. And the, 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 the gratitude you'll get from patients, if, it's, if you feel like that's your calling, that's what you need to do. Um, and from a quality of life standpoint, that's the difference you'll make in these kids. And I've still got the very first patient I put on Suboxone way years and years ago. And he's doing awesome, finished school, is able to have a life, you know. Mm -hmm. And and it's just been really awesome to kind of, it's like the family medicine of mental health, you know. It's all encompassing and it's longitudinal. It doesn't go away. Yeah. And as soon as we treat it, we have to make sure we monitor that all the way through life. That's the cool part, man. Yeah. That's the cool part. Super cool. Yeah. Super yeah. cool. I, uh, I like how you, we started out talking about quality of life, and that's what interested yeah. you in the first place. Um, that's and it was right. Even really after, or I guess maybe during your residency, Yeah. I also think it was kind of really cool that you didn't even know you wanted to get down this path no. at the time when you started residency, and then it became yeah. a, a mental health focus, and it became a passion, yeah. and, and there's no question it's definitely a passion. It's really cool to see. And, you know, I think if you keep your eyes open and you just look for stuff. I remember in residency walking through the ER, and our chief, I was like, hey, who's that kid screaming behind the curtain? He's like, oh, it's just some addict, you know? Yeah. And even back then, I was like, oh, that's weird, you know? I wonder what that's all about. Because they don't teach you any of that stuff, you mm -hmm. know? Until later on when you realize... Wow, these people are way more grateful for getting out of the rabbit hole than any diabetic ever was, mm -hmm. or any. Don't get me wrong; it's wonderful treating any mental, any kind of medical illness. Yeah. But in terms of their quality of life and like their ability to move forward, have careers, have families, take care of their kids, feed themselves, like that's really, really impactful. Totally. Because it turns their entire lives around, and it's very, very visible. You know. Cool. And it's cool to see. Yeah, that's awesome. Let's and the go alternative out. sucks. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Let's go out on that yeah. inspiring note. So, Absolutely. Dr. Edrick, thank you so much. Absolutely. Thanks, man. Thanks right. for having me. Yeah, no problem. Thank you so much for listening, everybody. You are the best. I hope you all enjoyed. Tune in next time. Thanks for listening to the Family Medicine Podcast. Remember to subscribe, follow, like, or whatever you do to show your dignity. Tune in next time. Her uterus was the universe, and it bloomed and birthed the moon and the earth. Nothing ever happened till it was observed by the first animals with optic nerves. It was a fight for survival. Many died though. Friends were formed to fight mutual rivals. Man and woman appeared and they realized there was a thing called love bringing joy into their lives. Boom, they were civilized. Went from stones and bones to phones and drones as many kings took the throne. Built empires and the stories well known. History ticks along like a metronome. And then I came to be to walk, talk, and throw stuff All grown up, I got a job now and showing up I'm sleep deprived, I'm misaligned 
My appetite is primed to feed the ego almost all the time And then I met you, lovely and smooth You quickly removed my modern man's blues I wanna celebrate every breath that I take Cause I'm afraid I'm dreaming and I don't wanna wait So baby, let me grab a hold of your body, mind and soul And forever gonna grow into something we don't know Baby, let me grab a hold of your body, mind and soul And forever gonna grow into something we don't know Baby, let me grab a hold of your body, mind and soul And forever gonna grow into something we don't know Baby, let me grab a hold of your body, mind and soul And forever gonna grow into something we don't know The universe was my universe but I left to pursue the search of love But sometimes it hurt along the way If there's anything I've learned Create a garden, plant flowers in the dirt I'm gonna be the sunshine and rain Protect you from the pain as I push you toward the flames Play the game and wonder am I the hunted or the hunter When I was younger I met God and I hugged her She said hey baby instead of getting lost within How about you try to walk a mile in my moccasin Stop, begin, let the thoughts and visions Guide you further down the road Going inch by inch, don't sprint Take it slow, protect your soul Travel long and far, but make sure to come home Cause the love that's here is what keeps you going And gives you the power and the freedom to grow Let's giggle and laugh and rise up through the stress This life is crazy, but it's the goddamn best When life gets complex, don't think, just do it first It was simpler when the uterus was so baby Let me grab a hold of your body, mind, and soul And forever gonna grow into something we don't know Baby, let me grab a hold of your body, mind, and soul And forever gonna Grab a hold of your body, mind, and soul And forever gonna grow into something we don't know Baby, let me grab a hold of your body, mind, and soul And forever gonna grow into something we don't know The uterus was my universe The uterus was my universe all conversation and information exchanged and contained in the Family Medicine Podcast is intended for educational and entertainment purposes only and should not be confused with medical treatment, advice, or direction. Nothing on the podcast should supersede the relationship and direction of your medical caretakers. Although guests on the show are board certified and licensed physicians, they are not functioning as physicians in this environment, and no doctor-patient relationship is formed. Let me grab a hold of your body, mind, and soul, and forever gonna grow into something we don't know. Baby, let me grab a hold of your body, mind, and soul And forever gonna grow into something we don't know Baby, let me grab a hold of your body, mind, and soul And forever gonna grow into something we don't know Baby, let me grab a hold of your body, mind, and soul And forever gonna grow into something we don't know